senior product management coach Mike Miller is back on the podcast. You're taxing my <laughs> capabilities right now. The podcast topic for today, which is slightly tongue in cheek, is things you do not say out loud in agile this promises to be good what things do we not say out loud in agile i don't know om do you want to pick one of these i don't right most agilists are former pms looking to stay relevant project managers Ooh, is that that true (laughs) i'm not a project well om was a project manager i'm not a project i'm not looking to stay relevant though no you're right you see a plethora of the project management elite they've now put on new hats because they've got new certs and they're suddenly transformed into project managers. Or, or sorry, product managers. They were project, and now they are product, and they don't even have to change their initials. PMs. Yikes. So I want to say in maybe 2015, at least like here in the South, like on the East Coast, Agile was picking up steam. Product management was, people were beginning to question the value of, of, of project managers. And then I, I had a lot of project managers coming to me asking, what is this Agile thing? Like how do I how do I get on that bandwagon? And it's for me it's like it's not a it's not a bandwagon it's just a, it's a better way of working like when 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 I was first introduced into agile like there was no for me like there were no consulting companies there were no certificates none of that was involved like we were we had found some stuff on the web that seemed to make sense we wanted to give it a try we did we we wrestled with it for 6 months until finally we kind of like all the water in the tub kind of settled out and we hit our stride and then over the course of the next year and a half two three years well i mean we we started cranking but that was because it made it intrinsically made sense to us we saw the value in it and we wanted to see how we could get it to work for us i think a lot of what you see even with pmi so the 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 project management institute so they resisted and resisted and resisted and they were set up to increase the value of project managers eventually they jumped on the bandwagon they have agile certifications now that 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 you can get through pmi and i have seen personally a lot of project managers switch over into agile or try to or at least go out and get a, a certificate and so that they could somewhat credibly make the claim that they were agile and and some of them do it with good intentions and some of them do it well but I, I just think that there's a whole boatload of them that did it just so that they could get the next job right or get the next raise or get the and for me it's not it's not about that I, I've never been a project manager so I, I'm I'm on the outs of this bullet point however I will I like to piggyback on top of this I will say in product management there is a lot of project management inside of product management like product management has its arms around project management in in some way shape or form like there's a percentage of a product manager's time that is taken up with project management i wish it wasn't that way but you can call it whatever you want to call it like some people call it like oh you gotta be a operator have operation skills or whatever but there is some a certain amount of like this by this date with these resources and this you know what i mean yeah there is. And, and I mean, where my brain goes, like when you say that is like for release planning. And so like with release planning, and I've seen this, I've got anecdotal evidence of this, is that every product manager, like every real product manager that you're going to come across that's been doing it a while, they have in uh, an Excel file or a Google sheet that they created based on somebody else's template mm-hmm. that are include all of the things that they have to do for a release plan for the organization where they're at, where they created it. And then they keep that. 
And then they go to their next job and they adapt it. And then they meet other product managers and other product people. At I think like two jobs ago, my chief product officer, he had one. And so I got his and I compared that with mine. And so you see a lot of project management, Gantt child start things in the release planning. But then there's a lot of things that, that you can do as a, that you do do as a product manager that, that aren't product management. Is this more true on the Scrum Master side, do you think? Yes. Well, definitely so. I think yes. definitely so. Absolutely. I can see, I can see, again, I'm on the, I guess, here we go. Again, I'm on the product management side of the podcast, so I'm trying to apply this to the product management side. That's where I'm having difficulty seeing if it's and true it, or not. Like, I, there's, like, I can see a lot of, like, BAs who are now reframed or, re, you know, <laughs> as product managers, but they're not empowered or no, whatever. So. That's for me like the the progression if you get involved with product like you could start out as a, a business analyst so mm-hmm. a lot of times like business analysts like what are they what are they paid to do they're they're paid to hold a model in their head and keep that model current and that could be the model of your product and how it operates yeah. and so you've got like the the bsas the business systems analysts but then they but they they could also be doing like the market or the customer or some segment and so that they become a resource now for a, a product manager to go and talk to so what's the natural progression from a BA well the junior product manager sure APM right and then and and they go from there so I mean for me that's that's very logical but I think that that agile when it came out and I mean remember it was like they signed the thing in what like 2001 2001 and then it takes time for it to spread but you know so it was probably I want to say 2011 2000 early 2012 before I it was even on my radar about by that point like I'd been in IT for five six seven years and it wasn't even a thing and then I just started hearing about it and then we started looking it up and then we took it from there on our own but rapid growth in in agile and and adoption of agile or companies that were willing to experiment with it it scared a lot of the traditional project managers and so then they jumped on the bandwagon and they didn't come at it from the angle. and I'm not saying that everybody has to do it the way that I did it I'm not saying that at all but I got to see it without the commercialization. And so we were using it because we felt that there was value there. If you're a project manager and you're suddenly afraid of your job because before you had 12 postings online for a project manager position and now you've got eight for a scrum master and four for a a project manager, that would scare anybody. Yeah, right. And now you have to make a change and what do you do? You change the word, but you don't change the meaning. Now I'm not a I'm not a project manager. I'm a I'm a scrum master. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like I like how you said that you change the word, you don't change the meaning. You also don't change your behavior because it's hard to do that like quickly, right? Right. Definitely on the on the scrum master side, there's a natural inclination for project managers to come in and quote unquote manage the team, manage the project. So all they've done before that is core project management, treating people like resources, measuring their utilization, handing over work breakdown packages to people, and essentially letting people work, but very closely supervised. I guess I'm trying to say that they were essentially taskmasters at the end of the day. Well, you, you change your job title, but you change literally nothing about the way you worked. Right. Like that, I've interviewed project managers who were making the transition into either product management or scrum mastery or whatever and the thing that i will interview for is you whether you have had a revelation about there's a change in the way that you work or if you've just remarket relabeled and marketing yourself differently i I guess the point i I think this was mine the point is is that i i feel like that there are a lot of people that have remarketed themselves yeah they saw the salaries 
that Scrum Master started yeah. to pull down. And, yeah. and and right now, I feel like there's a there's a contraction in the Agile space. That's Definitely. A, that's another conversation that, that for another time. certainly is another podcast, yeah. But they, they saw a growth in that area, and they felt like the, the skills were transferable. You said, like, if they didn't have that aha moment, like I say, like, it, it, if it doesn't click, right, if it doesn't snap into place, if it doesn't fit into place, then, I mean, what you're looking at are project managers that are parroting agile vocabulary without being able to put the principles and values into practice. Right. Yeah, the, the, like the scary part of that is when they come through the interview pipeline, you know what I mean? They're, they're like coming in through the interview pipeline, I, like I can't, I can't be around to interview every single one of these people to, to check. So uh, you can find someone who can speak the language who really is just like they're, they're, I've got to think about a way to think about a way to say this on the podcast. They, they can speak the language, but they're really just they're really just changing directions with whatever way the wind blows, and that's that is a that's a problem. So yeah, no, that's that that's very true. You you get these opportunists that jump on the bandwagon if they, they see that there's a, a chance for them to to get more glory, to get more money, to get right. more prestige, right. to get more power, right. and that was never kind of the intent at least my understanding of it behind agile it was it was to work better it was to make not exactly sweatshop conditions i don't think software developers work you know in, in sweatshop conditions at, at least not the ones that i work with but to make it better as opposed to having a taskmaster that it became a more collaborative process yeah. between engineering and product and and that was why you had like the, the the trifecta right the trifecta is like you're the scrum master who's looking at the team performance you've got product owner who's looking at the product value and then mm -hmm. you've got the the engineer that's telling you whether or not it's feasible or how we can best go about this and so you've got that 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 holy trinity of, of engineering performance and product like that combination makes sense to me mm -hmm. right if you're not able to engage in that process in, in good faith, I don't think you're going to get optimal outcomes. Right. I think one of the things that also makes it difficult is at that time, uh, in the timeline when project managers were transitioning into product or even or scrum mastery for that matter, middle managers that were kind of above them were prizing and demanding the same thing that these people were doing before, you know, uh, status reports and Gantt charts right. and utilization, things like that. Yeah. Oh boy, buckle up and get ready for the podcast of the tyranny of middle management. That should that should be a podcast. All of us. We go back so often. Like Alphonse, where are you, man? Where, where are you, Alfonso? <laughs> like we need you. We go back to the Taylorism podcast so many times because like this stuff hasn't changed in a hundred years. It was it, it was conceptualized of hey, I need a timekeeper and I need a a, a person who's standing there with a top uh, stopwatch yeah. to tell you how fast you carry the pig iron from the train car back. And if you're not meeting the optimal amount of time, we have the disciplinarian and they and they tell you like hey, if you don't meet the time in the next two trips, we're gonna fire you or whatever and kick you out. And the artifacts of that culture survive. And they're unnecessary. They're completely unnecessary. Here we go. I'm throwing one out right now. That that middle management layer that is left over from a hundred years of Taylorism is completely unnecessary. Uh, the uh, the the teams can manage themselves. The teams can organize themselves because what we're doing when we ask teams to manage themselves is we're taking a, a, a bit of leadership and we're saying we're going to delegate this leadership to you, the team, the, the cohesive body of the team. And then like the, the, the arguing, I'll already throw out the arguing point now. The, the arguing point against this is like, well, when you delegate to a team and it's a group of people, you're basically delegating to nobody. It needs to be one person's 
responsibility. Okay, fine. It could be one person. It could be the product manager's job or the scrum master's job, whatever. The, the most senior person on the team, engineer, whatever's job. It doesn't matter. Whoever, whoever, if you want to go to one person, that's fine. It doesn't matter. You should be the product manager. But the the the, the whole middle layer, this is the other thing you say in, in, in Agile that you like, we work around the middle layer of organizations a lot. Mm-hmm. Really, we need the top layer that sets the direction for the organization and the bottom layer that does the work. And we really don't need a lot of the intermediary middle layers. We really don't need that. that sec- and like a very few agile coaches are willing to say, I don't need any of these people. Get them out of my way. Get them out of my process. You just, you leadership, you, the people at the top of the organization, tell me where you want to go. Communicate directly with me. And, and we, the team, will steer talking directly to the customers in the direction we want to go and be successful. Yeah, I, I mean, in when I was a director of, of product owners, what I spent a lot of time doing was mentoring them, making sure that they could do their job, sure. giving them the tools that they needed, giving them the confidence, like building them up so that they didn't need me around. Mm-hmm. Like I was literally trying as hard as I could go to work myself out of a job. Right. And apparently I did. <laughs> So, see, that, but it was one of my product owners that took over. See, that's a little bit different to me because it, let's pretend for a second <clears throat> at Brian and Ohm's development, software development company, we fire all the middle management. Ohm, get on board with this. We're firing all our middle, middle management. I'm so already is, on board. So this is <laughs> no software? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Listen, I lose either way. This is Brian Orlando software. I lose either way. Yeah. We're firing all the middle managers and we're going to delegate to the teams. Well, there goes my brain. Like, I, So <laughs> I'm going to argue that you do need some senior people but that they right. should, their behavior should be that of servant leaders and that their focus should be on building the skills and the, the, the capabilities of, of the people that they serve, right? right? And so like when, when I was a director of, of Agile product owners, it was all about what I could do to empower them to be successful because mm-hmm. they were working with the teams that were building the software. Now, I mean, did I did I wield some influence? Did I nudge things here and there? Yeah, I did. Everybody's gonna. Well, that's different because in in the model where you're basically the first amongst equals, I'll throw that one out. I don't say amongst often on the podcast, but if you're the, weird, if you're the first amongst equals, that, that basically, what does that mean? You're probably the hiring manager you know, you're the gatekeeper for mm-hmm. product management in the organization. You, you and also, if your product managers, if your product managers leave the organization and your teams are left without a product manager for a period of time until you hire a new one, mm-hmm. you probably step in. And and leadership probably trusts you implicitly to say, well, well, Mike, we know he's such a good product manager. If we deploy him to anywhere, we'll like we'll have successful product management in wherever we deploy him to. So again, when you manage people. Your job ends up being making sure those people are developing and people coming in and out and whatnot. It's it's less of the day-to-day operations of product management and more of supporting the people in right. product management. But I think that, that that middle layer that you're talking about that arguably needs to be downsized, they're, they're not. They have business performance metrics that they have to hit like but they they're not spending their time growing their people they're not spending their time growing skill sets they're not spending their time mentoring unless it's their protege that's going to take their place when right. when they get invited to the to the executive yeah. suite and my argument is I'm I mean, basically, it's an argument for like a matrixed organization. Even if you don't have a matrixed organization, if you're responsible for a group of people that share the same core 
capabilities, professional responsibilities, then your job is to upskill them, right? Yeah. Branson said, what was it that he said? It's, uh, he said something about don't train your people rather so they leave or so they don't have so they train your people so they don't have to leave train your like train that. your people so that they can leave but treat them well enough so that so, they won't so want they don't to. have to leave i knew we'd get but, it right between uh, us. so it's something along those lines yeah. but it's some of the best bosses i've ever had were deeply concerned about where i was going with my career and my skill sets took an interest in me spent time with me sat down at my desk not me sitting at their desk. They sat down at my desk and and mentored me, and that was how my skills grew. And so, if you don't, if if you have a middle management layer that is counting widgets produced by a team, that should be the product's job. The product performance is product's job, yeah. right? And they're the ones that should be held accountable for that. I think it comes down to how the middle management is rewarded, right? If they're rewarded on simply utilization of their subordinates then you're not going to get them to upskill their teams because why waste time training them? They should be being billable and utilize that, right? So it depends, right? The part of their assessment should be how are you growing the skill sets of people that you're on above, right? And that's not often the yeah, case. Yeah, I, I mean, how many, how many managers, senior managers, directors have a metric that says that their bonus is tied to how many of their people got promoted internally? Right. Unnecessary. Like, they're all gone. Sorry. Flag uh, on the play. Nobody right. does that. That's right. Like, un- unnecessary. There is very little here that cannot be delegated to the teams that I'm hearing. Like, I don't, I don't, like, oh, my I, team doesn't know how to interview. Well, that, that's why I have no. HR people. Let, let me put one on your team for, you know, until you have well, your people hired. I think you need those skilled people. I think you need those, like, the, the skilled agile coaches that's going back and training and working with the scrum masters to grow their scrum masters. You need a senior product manager the product owner, whatever you want to call them, that's going back and that's teaching those other product managers and product owners like how to be better at their jobs. Like yeah. you need lead engineers going back and mentoring other engineers and bringing them up. You need juniors sitting with seniors so that the juniors learn. And like I think that's something that it, it feels like our model is like fundamentally flawed. Like like that mentorship, it's not a formalized part of the part of the model it just i mean it kind of happens it kind of happens on the side right. and that's why when those people when you do mentor someone and you make a huge impact like you get christmas cards you get happy birthdays from them like 10 years later like it's because you made an impact on their life mm-hmm. right right and, and instead of you counting widgets like you stopped and took some time and made an impact in somebody's life then it made their life, their career better. Oh, that's what we should all be trying to do. Speaking of having an impact on people's lives, like this is not on our agenda, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. I'm like, this is my gorilla agenda. I can't work this way. Too late, you're here. What's the Alistair Coburn quote? He's it's something about like, we never expected anyone to do to do Scrum and not do XP. It was, it was Jeff time. Sutherland. I think it was in his first book. The one about how to use three people to go to the moon or get a million <laughs> I get a get a million man hours done in a week. I don't know, but it was it was that book, and I believe I, I don't know if I, I think it was Jeff Sutherland, but it might have been Alistair Coburn. But we never expected people to adopt Scrum like without adopting like XP without as XP. Well. Yeah, I, I like the the core tenant. Uh, I remember reading the tweet saying we never expected that you would pick up this way of working and not also do XP, which is funny because like I, I think about the work centers that I've been in and the development teams I've interacted with and how few of them truly are doing peering or mob 
programming. Yep, that first development team where we were trying to do Scrum, they started to do the code reviews on their own because they thought they read it somewhere and it sounded like a good idea. And, and I think and and maybe I'm going to get this wrong, maybe I'm not, but it was it was Schwaber that wanted to cut some of the hardcore engineering stuff like out of that scrum model so that it could be more broadly applicable. Sure. And I guess he won that argument. And so scrum is intentionally half-baked. I believe Mike Cohn has said that scrum is intentionally half-baked. But And this is the difference between like a, a good scrum master and somebody who's like a scrum master in name only. A mm-hmm. good scrum master already knows that scrum is only half-baked. And that there are other things that you have to do. Everybody talks about user stories. Scrum doesn't talk about user stories. That comes from XP. That's right. And so the, the code reviews, the, the write the test before you write the code, all of that stuff comes over from XP because it was the Agile manifesto for software development. Right. It was not the Agile Manifesto for feeling good or baking cookies or making widgets. It was the Agile Manifesto for software development. And so when you put those two two bodies, frameworks, I guess if you want to call them that, but when you put those two things together, you really start to see better outcomes like with with your teams with your product teams practices because now you're striving for you've got the product owner or product manager pushing for product excellence you've got those xp elements that are pushing for engineering excellence right and then you've got that scrum master that's pushing for team performance excellence and that's when the magic really starts to happen here's here's another thing we didn't write this down on a sticky too is that like scrum masters what i've seen like over the past five or six years is scrum masters are scared to have team performance metrics tied to their bonuses they're scared i mean and having lived and worked in product I'm scared every day of my life. I'm always being judged by the market. I'm always being judged by the market. But when you, if you do the work, you get it right or right enough. And having scrum masters that don't have any kind of time back to team performance. So then how can you measure their performance? Mm-hmm. That's what they're there for. Mm-hmm. Product owners are for product. Scrum masters is for, are for team performance. So, and, and I don't mean like, oh, you know what? The, the team has done, on average, 15 more story points this quarter over last quarter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about whether or not like the team matures, whether or not the team's outputs are more valuable yeah. this quarter than they were last yeah. quarter. Can we measure that? Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that they, Scrum Master's money should be tied to. It should be, but I think some of that is attributed to the fact that, like you said, you know, some some of the scrum masters, a lot of the scrum masters, perhaps, are basically treating the scrum guide as the Bible, you know, and and just doing it doesn't say that in the scrum guide, so we're not doing it. Sacred cows. Yeah, I feel like there's there's something to be said here about if the system is broken, there's really nothing a scrum master or anyone in leadership, honestly, they're all just playing the game inside of the rules of the system. Which which system? Which like system you, are you talking about? Like well, if you, if a lot of people, that if you call themselves agile coaches, they throw system around. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're pl- like if you're playing a board game and there are rules, right? It's a rule set. Yeah. It's system. You, you're not you're not allowed to think outside of the box. Like those are the rules. If you're in a large organization, like out like to beat up scaling and uh, like a lot of people online beating up safe too. But but there is a lot of models that have popped up trying to, to, to sell their wares on the internet or whatever. Can, can I phone a friend? I'm going to have to call Dean Leffingwell. There's a lot of people trying to sell their wares about, oh, no, we know 
the right way to scale and have multiple teams contribute to your backlog and, and hit, hit your deliverables on a faster basis or whatever, because we can add more teams and not slow down or whatever. Like I would argue all the people you have working on software development and all the people you have trying to hit your business objectives, like, and all the models that we have on the market for quote scaling, that's not an agile problem. Scaling is an org design problem. And I, I feel like and you're not going to hire an agile coach who's just like, you have org design issues. I can't really help you. Like you, 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 like leadership has to solve your org design issues before anything I could do is effective. So here, I once gave like a talk. I think it was at like the Florida Open Agile or Open Agile Florida, whatever it's called. On, I think the title of the talk was like, "So you want to be an agile coach?" I remember that. And I think a lot of people came out of that talk, and what I was saying just went. Whoop. Like, oh, no. And what I was saying was that, like, for me, before I ever dared call myself an Agile coach in public, I might have practiced a few times in the mirror at home. But before I did that in public, I wanted to make sure that I had wide experience, scrum master, product owner, wide experience, multiple frameworks, and deep experience, right? And but I had been involved in some agile transformations that I had worked on multiple teams that I had worked on multiple products in multiple enterprises that I had some kind of experience to 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 fall back on to use to overlay with some of the models to see kind of like what was really going on and I think a lot of people like some of the people in that talk I know failed to to pick up on that that you you need to go deep and you need to go wide the scaling frameworks and, and I have an SPC I'm not going to lie I I had a a scrum at scale cert that I didn't renew cuz it was just too expensive and there are there market <laughs> leaders in scaling agile Yes, there are market leaders in scaling agile. Like yeah. right now, I think Safe has probably got the the, the largest market share. But this, I agree with you. The scaling frameworks are not going to solve organizational problems, and you see this now when you try to institute Safe. And some places are doing it successfully, but a lot of places struggle with it. And then you start to see tension between this change where they're trying to adopt Safe, and then like the 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 C-suite. Right there's there's tension there. There's always going to be tensions there with middle management. Middle management. Anytime somebody says agile, middle management, they're the first ones to feel threatened. For sure, because they're not mentioned in the Scrum Guide, right. and that terrifies them. But the natural progression for me, bring this home, Mike. Scrum master, right? Senior Scrum master, agile coach, enterprise agile coach. I think that the next step is is you become some kind of consultant guru or whatever that's focused on org design to to help people redesign their orgs that can at I don't want to say agile but respond at nearly the same pace as the market is changing at nearly the same pace as the customers are changing I I think that's the natural progression I don't think people are taking it there I know that there are some people in the agile space that are working on things like that that have written a a book or two I, I don't think enough people are talking about it yeah, I think what happens from what I've seen is a scrum master would call themselves an agile coach as soon as they have a couple of teams. Yeah, exactly. Teams. Right, that's exactly right. <laughs> and what doesn't help is people say, well, there's no just this guy's an agile coach. You're doing coaching if you're a scrum master. I got to interject right here. Something that you don't say out loud in agile. I'm an agile coach. Oh, so you, you've been a scrum master for two teams. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's man. too much. What, what else we got going on here? If the funding model is the traditional 
funding model. Don't bother trying to go oh, agile. Oh, listen, like this is this is mine. I will surely represent this uh, topic. If you're on a traditional funding model, if you have finance yearly, ask for the money you need, and then if you don't use it by the end of the year, we're going to take it away or whatever. If you're on a traditional funding model, not any kind of like new fandangled micro budgeting or whatever, like and your People that are actually doing the work are not exposed to the finances or the organization decides, ooh, that's that's sensitive information. We can't share financial information with you. You're going to be very limited in the amount of agility that you can apply in that case. I I can't argue with that because I've seen it too many times. It's the annual budgeting process that and you just have to hope that that budget's going to be enough for that year no matter what happens like like there were people in the government that studied diseases that saw covid coming like there was i, I believe that there there was a, there was a book there was a plan like at the white house that was laid out like they knew that it was coming it wasn't to some people it was not a surprise mm-hmm. right to the rest of us it was a complete and utter surprise mm-hmm. and so the government government's leadership like whatever they were they didn't have that information they weren't keyed in on that information they couldn't act on that information it's the same in business though there are people that understand agile finance now there there are and i'm i'm not one of them like i understand about that much in terms of like agile finance i know how to get it started that's about it but are some people that understand it and they and they're people that understand the cha- the changes that you have to make in the organization in, in order to make that work like on a on a larger scale but because their number is limited because nobody's talking about there's not widespread talk about agile contracts right agile contracts are they're they're ongoing and they're contingent we right? did a, we did a whole episode on that right we did yeah. absolutely and it's not a foreign concept but how many people how many organizations how many of our peers do you know that are using them a lot of people that I've interacted with, they think that's like somebody else's job. Well, contracts is somebody else's job. Finance is somebody else's job. You know, well, I've never been exposed to that before. So I don't think that I'm, I, there, there's some, it's not FOMO. What, what is it? It's, I don't think not, I'm not quite, you're right. Yeah, there's a little bit of not by job, but also a little bit of I'm not qualified for that going on. You know, you, I would I would say that if you're some, any kind of program manager, if you're in product management and your company has more than one product, if you're a safe RTE or involved in like the, that portfolio level of safe or whatever, I think these are these are questions that people should be asking. These are conversations that people should be broaching. These are things that people should be pushing towards because that's when you have like a, a, a finance model that isn't the dead weight of 365 days of false predictions mm. hanging around your neck like when you when you're a little bit more responsive than that when you can change even every business quarter would be a better change right and and we've seen this like when you have it's it's like shark tank i've been at companies where they had innovation committees where they mm-hmm. would go in and they would place bets on certain things and those bets were usually in some type of funding and then they would place a bet for a business quarter, and then they would say, "Come back. Yeah. We we think this idea has legs. We want you to go develop it to this point, A, B, and C. And then come back, and then we'll look." Uh, I think the the discerning product manager has the ability to step in now and say, "Hey, we we think this idea has legs. Okay, like me, the product manager, I'm stepping in at this point in the, in the discussion and say, "Okay, cool. 
how much money are you willing to put forward to experiment to test the market to see if this idea has legs because the the, the finance people the project people whatever this the c-suite people whatever they have an idea of how many dollars they'd be willing mm-hmm. to spend to, t- to test it. It's just that the, I feel the, the, the quote agile people are not good at, at, at having this discussion right now is how much are you willing to spend to find out if there is market signal for this? And, and, and whatever your answer is, okay, well that translates to this many sprints. So we have this long to figure out if there's signal that it should be, I mean, if you really think about it, it should be a really easy formula. Yep. My team costs this much to fund. Yep. You're willing to spend whatever, $100,000, whatever, Do you mean to, to just figure out if there's a signal. Okay, well, 100000 divided by my team's cost to figure out if there's a signal, and then you're ready to try to, 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 to go into that market. I, I think there's one thing that's missing from your equation, and that one thing is that is, is a defined metric that they're trying to to hit with this experiment. So I think if you have those three things, right? I think if you know like the run rate of your team, like how much yeah. your team costs. Yeah. And again, companies, especially large enterprises, they don't they don't want to tell scrum masters and they don't want to tell no. product owners, product managers even, what the run rates of the teams are. And when you're disclosing the run rate of a team, you're not giving someone someone's individual salary. No, it's, it's a blended just the rate. Cost yeah of the team. You can easily derive it with a blended hourly rate. Mm-hmm. So some companies you use know. like a stand-in number, some companies use the actual number or some or they maybe use last year's actual number. Yeah. Like sure. whatever, but I mean, but there's got to be a number there. There's got to be, you know, we're willing to make a bet in this many man hours, this many dollars, right? right? That that's got to have some relationship to the run rate of the team and then there's got to be a metric that you're trying to to hit. I mean, so my grandfather took me fishing my enchi- my entire childhood. I loved my grandfather. He was a very important person to me. I hated fishing. Absolutely hated it. But he would not sit in one place and throw his rod out over and over and over and over again and get nothing. He wouldn't do it. He had a time limit and he would get back in the boat, crank up the engine, take off, go to another spot and try there. And there's no difference with that between that and and he, he knew where fish lived. He knew how they behaved. He knew his target market. Yeah. And we companies don't, they can't behave like that. They get into this, the fallacy of the sunk costs, right? Mm-hmm. They get into like everybody always in product management goes back to Blockbuster and Netflix. I still call Best Buy Blockbuster, by the way. They're both blue. And in my mind, they're the same. Netflix, the two guys walked into Blockbuster and offered to sell Netflix to Blockbuster. And Blockbuster said no, for no other reason than Blockbuster could not envision any kind of business or business model or activity outside of their current business model. They were not willing to make any kind of changes to run any kind of experiment yeah. to, to do anything differently than what they had always done yeah yeah and it sunk them again this whole category like as a product person this a, a bad business decision that's going to sink my whole team like the, the, the that like small business owner weight should be on you as a product person right if if the if the if the funding is there, if your communication with customers is there, if your understanding of the market is there, all the variables being in place and watching, you should have that weight on top of you. And this is why, this is why, like another thing that you don't say out loud in Agile, 
usually i think agile coaches can see this from like across the room clearly is like oh all these backlog items all these pbis or stories or epics or whatever like none of these have the customer in mind like none of these are moving the needle as a product person i clearly see you're producing features and they don't connect to value to the customer as like that's an existential threat for me but gosh the majority of teams that i've seen out there that are flying around the majority of product backlog items and features that are out there oh boy they're way off the marks i've been no i've been there and i've worked on products and worked with teams where the bottom of my backlog was a graveyard that was if i didn't like your idea if i didn't see merit in your idea and you stopped me in the hallway i would definitely make you a, a, a product backlog item like i'd give you the jira yell and that thing would be buried at the bottom and we spent all of our time at the top and i've seen this firsthand too many times too many times to count where the idea of a product owner is less about owning a product and more about owning a backlog of really being a backlog manager yeah. you're not even the backlog owner per se you're just the backlog manager yeah absolutely agree and not necessarily even doing a great job at that because you may have hundreds yeah. and hundreds of items in your backlog yeah but just to go back to what you're saying a lot of so-called user stories have nothing to do with the user when you look at the backlog I, one of the big mistakes that i see and it's becoming more important to me like the longer i spend in agile and in product management is th is that 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 whole value so we were talking about the acronyms earlier before the podcast so so dove right the v is value mm -hmm. like valuable there has to be some kind of value in there but what i see over and over and over again in all kinds of different agile product man or project management tools or product management tools is there's sometimes there's not even a way for you to input value without having to create like a custom field like it's not it's not standard right there's no standard measurement of value you, it depends on your business, but people aren't even trying. That's because a lot of those kinds of tools evolved from project management tools, which yeah. at that point we didn't care about value. We just cared about when's it going to be done. And if that's what you prize, then you'll get that. Well, but what, what about the quality? Feature factories. So like when you have stakeholders that, that argue that, that where prioritization is not systematic, right? There's no math involved. Like when, if, if there's no math, I'm just going to say this. If there's no math involved in the way that you prioritize things, you're doing it wrong. I don't care what you're calculating. It could be the value. It could be return on investment. It could be projected earnings. It could be yeah. cost of delay or whatever. There should be some numbers involved. If there are no numbers involved, if there's no math involved, then it's uh, people, oh, use Moscow. Well, when you use Moscow, then, and you have three stakeholders and they each have four things everything all 12 things everything's priority <laughs> yeah exactly everything's priority what, everything's what do you must do have. when you have 12 must-haves you have to have a way to differentiate you Absolutely. have to and if you don't you're not going to make any headway none whatsoever very true and then your backlog will turn into a garbage dump this is what you're talking about right now i think yeah. Most POs are little more than delivery managers. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, we were talking about the backlog, but yeah, I mean, people aren't concerned with value. They're, they're concerned with, it, it's almost like the, the management or the powers that be are more concerned with the number of features that you pump out opposed, as opposed to whether or not you're moving the needle on some aspect of customer satisfaction, customer delight, value for the, the end user. There are, I can tell you now, like in the credit and debit card industry, there are a small number of people already in the United States. And when I say a small number of people, I don't mean six. I mean like 10,000 that have the same chip 
that's in your debit card in their wrist or a similar one and when they go to those contactless payment things they just wave their wrist at the now i'm not an expert in that field even though i have worked in finance for the past four four or five years there are a lot of questions oh absolutely i have a lot of questions about that but that is obviously a direction that things are going well whether it becomes mass market or not i don't know it depends on how easy it is to do it depends on the the transportability of the uh information or the updatability of the you know every time i switch banks or get a new credit card you are not cutting my wrist that's not how that works so i have a lot of questions but that is a direction that things are going that's not where things are right now but there are a small number of people from a societal point of view that are already experimenting with this there are companies that are doing it there are companies that are tied their financial systems are tied to that chip there are companies that are implanting those chips there are customers that are using those chips how many people are betting on that first of all you can keep your chips yourself, but second of all, and second of all, take your eyes off me. That's right. We'll get you implanted right. no. before the end of this podcast. Oh no, <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. The the idea that most POs are not thinking about, like, hey, will most people take a chip implant to be able to just wave their hand? What are you, some Jedi? <laughs> wave their hand and pay for things. Here's the way I think about this: most backlogs are not written with the stories contributing to a business outcome. Most backlogs that I've seen are written from the perspective of there's a a, a, a feature deliverable mm-hmm. at a high level that we need to deliver. And here's a bunch of stories that when we, basically when we're the 80-20 solution, when we're 80% done with the features, we'll just cut it and say, this is enough and we're done. We, we're done delivering to this feature. Right. Most people don't have a backlog where the epics or whatever, whatever system you're using could be quick Jira could be anything like <laughs> epics, uh, super epics, whatever the, yeah. the high level is. They're not like business problems. Mike Miller, you welcome to Brian and Ohm's software development company. You're now the director of uh, software development. Okay. You're going to sit in front of Brian and Ohm at a very uncomfortable meeting. We're going to make it uncomfortable. Don't, don't ask how we make it uncomfortable. And then we're going to say, now. we're going to say, <laughs> Mike, here's what we need from you in order to buy the next size yacht we need 20 percent more revenue out of the customers that we have so go figure out how to extract 20 percent more revenue out of the customers that are signing up to our app or attracting new customers we really don't care go get it kid so in your backlog it could say do whatever you can to get 20 percent more revenue hopefully you have better goals i'm giving you a business goal i want you to achieve this business goal Right, 20% more, I think about like evil business goals like Facebook. I want that time in session increased by 20%, right? Mm -hmm. I'm giving you a solid business outcome. So where you're diverging from the real world and how the real world works is that you're already giving me a concrete goal. You're giving (laughs) me a metric category and you're giving me like a target. So product goals, I mean, this is one of the things that I talk to product owners and product managers about. It's like, what are your, your product goals? Your product goal is not feature x unless feature x serves some larger purpose right right mm-hmm. so like when i've done things in the past yes have i worked on individual features or a set of features like absolutely but there was a goal we wanted something from all of these features whether it be like higher customer satisfaction more more longer session yeah. time like what, yeah. whatever it was but you can only focus on like kind of one, I'm just gonna say this, you, you should probably really only focus on like one metric at, at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like if, 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 if I'm a co-CEO if I'm, if I'm here at Brian Ohm's software development company and I come to you and I say, I want 
whatever whatever I'm saying today, like I want 20% more user engagement on the content we're providing through our application or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, I've given you the single metric. So basically, clear your backlog, write one epic, 20% more, whatever. And you stay on that until I come to you again and say, Mike, thanks for coming to this session again. We see that you, I gave you, I gave you the goal of 20% more, whatever, what 20% more engagement. You got us up to 17% more engagement. I'm happy with seven. I, I'm happy, and I'm here to tell you on behalf of Ohm, who couldn't be bothered. To I was come on to this. my yacht. Come he was on. Bo- he was busy sailing on his yacht, but 17% is good enough. We're going to take you off this, and we want more new signups now. Now we want 5% new signups in the next quarter, and that's what we want you to hit. So basically, you're closing the work that you did previously mm-hmm. on the on the business like you, you, and you're coming up with a new strategy and this is where I feel I feel a lot of people if I'm calling out anybody I'll call out product managers because this is my this is my line of work is even if even if like I'm coming to you with a super clean directive mm-hmm. in this completely made up example your real leadership will come to you with very murky, diluted. And if you're in a small company and you're the only product manager, it's up to you to distill what what they have given you, what leadership has given you into an actual strategy and put that into your backlog so your teams can be running on a strategy. Well, so, I mean, for me, I, I get I get an upset stomach when people start talking about strategy. So, and, and the reason being is that a lot of people don't understand strategy. Like for me, my take on it, strategy is the answer to the first how. It's like, oh no, we're, we're, we're going to war with Canada. How are we going to win this? Our, our, our Air Force is better than theirs, so let's use our Air Force. So that's the strategy. Use the Air Force. Right. Well, use the Air Force to do what? Okay, well, we're going to take out their infrastructure. I'm not advocating going to war with Canada in any way, shape, form, or that fashion. That would be wrong, buddy. <laughs> I love all six of the Canadians that I've met. They're great people. So, But strategy is the answer to the first how. How are we going to do this? And so for me, like when it comes to product, like there are a limited number of strategies. People want to approach strategy like it's Bigfoot right they're gonna go put cameras on trees and have a big camp out and they're gonna wait for however long no they so what is like what is your value prop are you high quality like are you a premium product are you a commodity right so those are those are like pricing strategies like are you customer centric and centered around customer service that you whatever whatever industry business that you're in you want your custom you want to be known for your customer service right that's a strategy you know do you want to be known for so going back to quality do you want to be known for durability like our cars last forever like our our equipment lasts forever like this is the best set of wrenches you can buy you'll never buy another set of wrenches as long as you live there are a limited number of strategies and people a lot of product people approach strategy like they have to pick one and they, they have to pick the right one from an unlimited number of strategies and i don't feel that it's that way there are a very few strategies and then they're 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 tweaked a little bit based on your context but they always run back to those same ones like are you a luxury premium product are you a, the lowest the cost product yeah. are you you know like are you customer service oriented are you I don't, I don't know i have a list somewhere i keep it written down like there, there's so i don't have to remember it but there's a limited number 
of strategies that you could be chasing. Which one are you chasing? And then now it gets more detailed when you picked a strategy and you said, how am I going to implement this? Yeah. Like that's when that's when the possibilities start to open up is how am I going to implement this strategy? But I think in a lot of places, especially large enterprises, where I've spent an inordinate amount of time, for some reason I must like it, the disconnect between the, the C-suite or the executive committee and everybody else is a gulf. It's a yeah. it's a it's a canyon. It's mm -hmm. a it's the Grand Canyon. Yeah. You can't hear what they're saying over there. We don't. What do they want? More, better, right. yeah, faster. But the goal that you said we want to increase time of session by twenty percent. Right. That's doable. I can chase that all day long. And it's focused. It's limited. Right. It's it's not open ended. And a lot of people's backlogs, I think, are filled with things that. Ah, some stakeholders think are opportunities. It's filled with maybe a set of baseline features that they think they have to have or they can't compete. But you need to categorize all of that. Like yeah. one of my favorite ways of prioritizing things is by doing a story map, like that walking skeleton. Like, so a customer's gonna engage with this feature. Well, what are they gonna get out of it? And then they're gonna engage with this feature. Well, why are they gonna move from this feature to that feature? What are they getting out of it? What is the progression? If you want people to use the features in your product, like you have to sit down and you pretend that you're them or engage with them engage with them yeah do your customer empathy map do do your customer journey mapping do your story mapping if you can get your stakeholders to sign off on your feature map and your feature map is is robust so it's it's the core of your product it's not optimizing the product it's like it's the core of the product yeah. if you can get them to sign off on that you don't have prioritization issues and it doesn't have to have everything under the sun in it to start with because no. you're going to be engaging with them throughout right yeah. and it will change it will change shape as you go forward yeah. undoubtedly mm -hmm. and you build out your core feature set and then yeah. you have multiple releases mm -hmm. through that core feature set to build them out now the argument comes wow do we keep put this in release one or put this in release two that's when you start having your conversations about capacity and the value of not a not a full-sized feature but maybe of individual stories do we want this in, in release one or two or three that's when you start and it's much easier to have those conversations than it is to have conversations about the, the core of your product and then if your bets are small enough and and the target is clear enough like i'll do that all day long yeah, you can pivot if you needed to and if you waste something it's not that big anyway yeah that's why the bets have to be limited the goals have to be limited so that you can safely make those bets so that you can say you know what we're not getting anywhere with this you can afford to lose those bets. Let's, we're going to stop this one we're going to go somewhere else that's the responsiveness that agility promises that a lot of people are just missing out on yeah. but you, you have to have you have to have data for that you have to have customer behavior data right you have mm -hmm. to have that analytic stuff you have to have product telemetry you have to know how it's behaving you have to know how they're behaving inside of it yeah. that information has to be made available to your product owner your product manager and the whole team needs to see it yeah so the whole team isn't done when they finish the story and get it to done or deploy the feature into production there's so much more left after that and that's something that you don't really see teams do very well at. We covered this on the previous podcast where mm -hmm. we talked about customer satisfaction and customer validation. Very few teams have like they have a done column that says like, oh, we're, we're like we're done yep. and it got sent out of production and whatever. I, I want a I want a post done column that says we validated that the feature that we released that went out to production that people can use, it actually met the 
it actually met and satisfied the business need that we started and and worked on the feature for. And I can again, I can think of like maybe one team in my whole career who was advanced quote advanced enough to to realize that their job does not stop at done like the done column on the board they they need to demo it and talk to the customer about does this do you think this really solves a problem so this is a result of your agile project management tools being focused more on this development process done means development's done now right you you build it you run it right that's the mentality for agile teams agile product teams if you build it you run it you operate it now most companies don't leave time for teams now to go back and look at the features that they've created that they've released and see what kind of impact that they're having they move on to fresh new things to build the next feature yeah exactly. well those are developers they don't those are developers they don't have business they're craftsmen like not developers you know? have you let them yeah. have you ever right. let them try that's well, right exactly uh, i was at a company one time where the, a sales opportunity fell through the pipeline and they said if we only had this one extra functionality i could actually tell you exactly what the functionality. i'm not going to because it might single out the company but if we had this one extra functionality this this company would have signed the contract and we would have x dollars of revenue if only and I'm like, mm, is that true, or is it? Or did they just not, or did they just didn't want to sign the contract, and they were giving you whatever answer? You I don't. Know. You, you people don't talk about like their value proposition enough, and like there's a there's a new a newer method for capturing product vision, which is called like the vision narrative, and, and that feels an awful lot like a bunch of essay writing to me. <laughs> I tend I tend to go for like the shorter, pithier kind of methods first. But what is your value proposition? Like, what is the value that your 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 product is offering to customers now your value proposition doesn't have to be a part of your 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 public facing you know company vision or company mission it could be depending on how it's stated but you need to understand the value that you're offering companies like if 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 you're a shipping company and you have a bunch of boats and no planes and no trucks then your value proposition inherently involves moving goods across water with boats right and if you want to expand into air freight and land ground transportation then that's something that you could choose to do but if the assets that you have currently are cargo boats then that's where your business model lies that's where your value proposition lies and most entrepreneurs they have gut feelings about market opportunities sure but you have to take that gut feeling and you have to put it down into like very clear words yeah you really have to define it of like what is it that you're you're going to do. So so Uber Eats, so Uber, mm-hmm. right? You you use the internet to call a stranger and get in their car, have them take you somewhere. Don't take candy from them. Uber went into Uber Eats, so now they're using those same people that are driving around looking for passengers. Now the passenger is food. They bought Drizzly and let Drizzly operate, and now they're shutting Drizzly down. And they're just now you can just buy your booze through Uber Eats, and so they've. They started out with one premise. They expanded that, food delivery. Now they've expanded it again into alcohol delivery. But at each step, right, there was a limited focus on the one thing that they were transporting. Which is probably why they were successful. Because you try and do all things to everyone. Well, but so the reason why Drizzly became a thing that Uber was going to buy was because nobody else was moving booze around like uber was moving people around and so that that was a market opportunity so that was their value proposition 
we'll bring you alcohol just like Uber Eats will bring you food or just like DoorDash will bring you food. We'll bring right. you alcohol. And then so instead of running two different companies, I guess Amazon or, or I'm sorry, Uber decided that they were going to fold it into their mainline operations. But they were focused on one thing at a time. Get let's, that right. Move on to the next thing. Let's, mm-hmm. let's go into the last item on our list today, which is that a PO should know the technical side at least conceptually, which also I, I'm going to blend this one just for the purposes of time with my company would never hire a scrum master who's uh, never worked on a software development team before. You know, I was made a development manager early on like in my IT career. Boy, that was a mistake. I'm going to say it didn't end well, but it actually did because it ended with my movement into product management. But your developers and your scrum master and your product owner should have a good enough relationship that they're, if the scrum master doesn't know something, they should be free to ask and the team should be free to respond. And I, I agree that, that scrum masters and product owners both, even if you don't know the technical stuff conceptually behind the, the digital product, you should learn it on the job until you can hold that conceptual model like in your head. And it doesn't have to, you, you're not, nobody's asking you to write codes and, and put semicolons in the right place or get <laughs> yeah. your indentation right. That's not, it, just saying that this system, the customer initiates a request by doing X with Y system and then that data flows from here to there via whatever API mm-hmm. and then it's transformed. You should just be able to have a basic conceptualization of the components of your product or your customer experience and just kind of what's going on like you don't need to be able to go in and administrate it you don't need to be able to go in and 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 repair it like that's not your job that's the development team's job like that's the developers do that but you should at least understand how it works so that you can draw me like a little lightweight diagram on a whiteboard and i can under i can understand by what you're saying how the whole thing works i agree with that i think your scrum masters your product owners could definitely collaborate with the, the architects or the tech leads or even developers and just say, tell me in layman terms, what is this whole thing about, right? And if a diagram like that doesn't exist, feel free to create one, even if it's rudimentary and wrong. Why, people will why tell you. Exist? Well, you may go into a team and you don't know about it, right? You ask and they, they all know in their heads what's going on. The diagrams that do exist are highly technical architectural diagrams, which you don't also understand. That's fine. I'm not suggesting you go down that level or DFDs or whatever, right? Just get a blank piece of paper and say, where's the start of all of this? Start with other questions like, who are we doing this for? Why are we doing this? Work with the product organization to understand not just the what, but the why behind it. Then relate to the team if they don't know it. They may know it, they may not know it. But yeah, start with something. Just do some doodles and say, what moves from here to here? And ask just questions and build up that something, right? You may not get it right, you probably won't, but that's okay, you can refine it. And you, you, you have to know enough to be able to have meaningful conversations. Right. And I guess that's, where's the limit? That's my point, is being able to have a meaningful conversation. And the impact of change in the train somewhere of these boxes, right? What is the impact of us, our team, doing something at this level versus this level? Just high level. You know, we have a complex subcomponent in the middle here that's that's doing something, transforming data. It's a, it's a third-party application that we, we lease from somebody else. We're going <laughs> to, business is going to end that contract. Oops. How is that now going to affect our product? Yeah. Oh, they want us to build a, build our own. Well, how long is that going to take? Ah, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> typically, that's how it goes. But no, that's a great example, right? That's what I mean by impact, high-level impact. The typical agilist will have a 
prepared response that says I'm not technical. Does a does a scrum master have to be technical slash come from a technical background? And and the typical even on this podcast will say, well, they don't necessarily need, but I mean they should be informed. They should generally know. However, there are organizations out there that are like, I'm not gonna hire somebody who doesn't. I'm not gonna hire somebody who hasn't been a developer to sit with and coach development teams. This is not going to happen. Well, I don't think the Scrum Master's focus is on engineering excellence. And I've never thought that. Like, for me, going back to earlier, the trifecta is like product, engineering, and team performance. But I'm not going to say team performance. I'm going to say organization. Like, how the team is organizing itself, how the business is organizing itself, right? We still, we still run into a lot of instances where we have product owners or product managers that are leading a vertical, a business vertical, but they're not the boss of anyone. Right. Or or the boss of anything. And the bosses of, of some ones and some things will tell them that quickly. And in that kind of an organization, like there's a there is a tension between people that have budgetary control over people and you the product people who are leading by influence but are still being held responsible for some kind of a business vertical. And so going back to this issue of like, how technical should I be? Like enough to have the conversation. With whom? Who are you talking to? Is it a member of your team, a developer? Is it the scrum master? Is it a stakeholder? Is it a vendor? You have to be able to have the conversation. If you can't have the conversation, then go practice the conversation. Yeah, I think it's just what level, to your point, right? So if you can hold a conversation in plain English about the context of your solution that you're building, that's probably good enough. If someone questions you deeper than that, then you can go get help from your teammates, right? Bring in the lead engineer. Does a product owner or a product manager need to know the maturity level of the team or how well the team is performing? It's not their focus. Should they know it? Yeah, that's like just information on the side. I mean, it's when I'm driving my car, I don't necessarily, I don't need to know the wind speed outside, like unless I'm in a hurricane or something. Like I don't need to, that's not, I need to know my speed. I need to know if there are dangerous weather conditions. I don't need to know the exact wind speed. Or the, or the revolution <laughs> of your tire. Yeah, how many times the tire is going around. Yeah. Like there's some information. Is it possible to go get this information? Yes. Does somebody use this information? Absolutely. As do I, as the driver, need to know this information? No. Yeah, that's right. And your dashboard should be tell-all, right? To, to your example, if the, is the car overheating? Well, you have a dashboard indicator for that, right? It gives me the information that I need to make the decisions that I need to make to keep yep. myself and my family mm-hmm. safe, other people safe. Like, And that's the automotive industry. They've had, I'm going to say, 100 years, over 100 years <laughs> to kind of get this stuff right. And that's not a whole lot of time. When you compare that to, you know, how long have people been building things to live in that weren't caves? Like, we've spent a lot more time doing that. But in 100 years, we've got my my dashboard's pretty slick. And I, and I have options on it. Like, the one that I have, it tells me how fast I'm going, and it tells me who's around me. That's what I that's where I keep mine on. Now, my wife has the exact same cars. We're cute, right? We both got the same cars. Mine's white, hers is black. You are very cute. She keeps hers on a different setting because she wants different information but that's still relevant information it's a set of relevant information i don't need all of it all at once but it's there and people do have not to get it if you need it that's what i'm saying if you need lots of lower level details we're going for that on your team yeah but i don't know the technical i don't know where like the the lidar devices are on my car i don't know how that stuff works i don't i just know that it tells me if somebody's around me 
Well, here at Brian and Ohm's Software Development Company, we don't know where anything is, and uh, that's why we like it. Exactly. So. And in today's podcast, you heard that we make virile software. So there you go. <laughs> something. Yeah. They, well, all right. Anyway. <laughs> you started it. Anyway. All right. So hopefully this has been useful for the 10 of you that are still with us at this point in time. Let us know if there's other topics that you're interested in, and don't forget to subscribe and like.